Hello, everyone. Welcome to this inaugural edition of the podcast we call the Bible Prophecy Masterclass. In this series of random lessons, our study will focus primarily on the entirety of the book of the Revelation, except for the 18th chapter, which is discussed separately. The text for these studies will be Judgment Day, Volume 3, Prelude to Armageddon, Part 3, Acts of God versus Gods of Earth. The writer is Mr. Alvin Mitchell, and I, Michael, will share in the responsibilities of narration and hosting with several of my colleagues throughout. Whereas there is much that could and should, perhaps, be said preliminary and introductory to even beginning at chapter one of this intriguing book, I have decided to bypass those and the first five chapters for now in the interest of getting right to the drama, or the things that will be hereafter, as penned by John the Revelator. Thus, at this juncture in God's narrative of the end times, as events of the apocalypse begin to unfold, several things are worthy of note. 1. The United States of America is no more, in terms of its being an international force to be reckoned with. Revelation 18. 2. Although headquartered in Israel, the Jews now command a global superpower by virtue of the Ashkenazim usurpation of Russia's industrial complex, its government and war machine following the battering administered by the hand of God during the multinational, multilateral incursion against the Jews in Israel, per Ezekiel 38 and 39. 3. The Jews will have been at the pinnacle of global power for many years. We will arbitrarily assume as many as 25 to 30 years. Part 4. In spite of humiliating losses years earlier, the world's appetite and thirst for Jew blood remains unabated, a fact of life that will not be lost on the Jews. Join me in a word of prayer that Almighty God will bless these studies and make them a blessing to all who take the time to join in. Revelation, Chapter 6, New World Order, Phase 2, Mysteries of the Scroll, Part 1, God is watching us, God is watching, oos, oh, God is watching us, from a distance. Few who love good music did not appreciate Betty Midler's rendition of From a Distance, even those of us who were utterly clueless as to its message. At first glance, the song appeared to be an exaltation of the name of the God of the Bible, a simple, beautifully written and executed song of praise. Popular selection that it was, white secular radio stations aired it virtually all the time. This author was for a spell one among those who could never figure out why, until he purchased and analyzed a copy of its lyrics. After all, there was a lot of great God-honoring music written before, during and after those days, not one note of which was ever featured on a white, secular radio station. So, the nagging question was, what made this tune so special? Duh. In that tune, Ms. Midler the Jewess crooned wonderfully. Closer examination, however, spurred by that irksome curiosity, later revealed that her work was in fact nothing short of a kind of poetic jest, if not outright intentional blasphemy. When properly distilled, it bears the fangs of a biting satire. 
Far from praise and adoration, the lyrics were, are in truth a cleverly crafted mockery, cutting sarcasm, a verbal flipping of the middle finger, designed to spew with charm, as it were, the poison of a galling ridicule directly into the face of the Most High God. The subtle innuendo of the song is something to the effect that if there is a God, he is at best a simpleton, aloof and buffoonish. He is out of touch with his creation, for she is, one perceives, of the denomination known as the Ashkenazim Jews, who are largely atheistic, nihilists, anti-Christ, and even subtly anti-Semite in their thinking. Moreover, if God is real as he watches over his creation, afflicted in the eyes by what might be deemed a form of tunnel vision, guided by a kind of paralysis of mind, then he rules in regal stupidity. He sees things only from a distance, incapable of doing even that, except, as it were, through rose-tinted glasses. In this light, then, everything is beautiful. Ah! All those hungry bellies are full stomachs. Infighting, whether amongst the races or between the nations, all translates into brotherly love. So, I, God, just cannot relate to all this fussing and fighting. Therefore, to a degree, all things are in harmony. All is to me, God, right? There is no wrong. There's no injustice, no real cause for concern. Everything is beautiful in its own way, tuned by Ray Stevens. Crafty writing, wonderful execution, perhaps, to a tune straight out of the pit. God has an answer to this and all such mockery of his person, and Ms. Midler's caricature will be dealt its just reward. Having already begun as promised to make himself known to men by elevating the nation of Israel, per Ezekiel 38 and 39, he continues here as the sun. In due time he will step aside briefly, back into the shadows, as it were, so as to allow the heart of every man to open up, unabated. This unrestricted, hell-inspired manifestation will in turn drop him straight into a lap of bridled, but no less potent concentration of holy anger, making for a formal, although harrying introduction, to the real God, the Almighty, the object of his ridicule. In addition, Given the light of all that is happening in the world around us today, and in her homeland in particular, Ms. Midler and all of her admirers would do well to take to heart the fictitious words of Stan Lee's Marvel Comics character, the Silver Surfer. Speaking to the invisible woman factor of the Fantastic Four, he warned solemnly, Enjoy the last few hours you have left, for it, the destroyer of worlds, is almost here. The day that men once derided but now dread is fast approaching. An alien force from outside of our world, far superior to men, will invade planet Earth. Foretold by the prophets, the Christ, and the apostles, this study of the apocalypse will lay out the details of God's plan to make himself known, being the antithesis of Bet's jest, the nightmare of every man, Worthy of note, perhaps, the song was written by a secretary, singer, songwriter Julie Gold, and first performed by singer, songwriter Nancy Griffith. 
Based upon the song as performed by these two artists, it is not hard to buy into the notion that the intent of the song was to extol what could be if men would strive for greater harmony more so than ridicule of God as an idiot who only sees the world through rose-tinted glasses. Although, on the other hand, knowing that her background, like Ms. Midler's, is heavily Jewish, immigrant 1930s Russian Jewish grandparents and Orthodox mother, Romanian Jewish grandparents on her conservative father's side, and that this background most probably Ashkenazim on both sides did play a definite role in her songwriting may be cause for pause. Not clear which side influenced her thinking the most. All that said then, and with that in mind, a number of things, false doctrine, I guess you might say, should be cleared up right here, right from the beginning, namely, contrary to the thinking of even well-known teachers like John MacArthur of the Grace to You Bible Teaching Broadcast. The seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments are not repetitions of the same events. That is, they are not references to one set of seven events stated in three different ways. In fact, the trumpet judgment simply cannot transpire until after the seventh seal is opened, and the bowls cannot and will not occur until after the seventh trumpet. The nature of the events in each set of judgments do not in any way correspond, as each comes with its own signature, in terms of collateral damages, etc. The rider on the white horse in Revelation 6 is not the beast, a.k.a. the Antichrist, or one world ruler, mentioned in chapters 11, 13, and 17. The events in chapter 6 are not the battle of Armageddon. The rider on the white horse is not peddling peace. Rather, by going out, conquering and to conquer, his mission and his intention is to upend and to destroy whatever peace there is, which he is able to facilitate without personal involvement himself. Thus, he has no arrows. He is or will be the instigator of all the wars amongst the nations. The conflicts and the fighting in chapter 6 is not a gathering of the nations at Armageddon to surround Israel, per the will of God, as rather this is a global melee in which the nations attack and fight each other in their respective lands, not Israel. The appearance of Christ at the end of chapter 6 has nothing to do with his coming at Armageddon. At this juncture, the mystery of the scroll begins to unfold originally in the hands of the one seated upon, the throne, that is, God the Father. It is now in the competent hands of God, the Son, the Lamb, the only being in the entire universe worthy to break its seals, so as to expose and set in motion the edicts of its contents. It contains the highlights of twenty-one major events, all judgments in three broad categories or groups of seven each. These major events are further delineated by three woes. The term woe generally means grief or affliction. Its usage in this context of the revelation is meant to preclude the overlapping or superimposition of any one group of judgments over another. That is, the trumpets are not a restating of the seals, and the bowls do not happen at the same time as either the seals or the trumpets. All 21 major events and the woes 
characterize or spell out the requisite defining moments of this entire period of seven years, plus we know as the Apocalypse, or the Great Tribulation Period, in evangelical, fundamentalist circles. Thus, this is a time of great judgment upon all mankind, designed to do several things, although in fact it is not merely a time of judgment per se, in light of the attention given to evangelism as well, and the evident high anticipation, expectation as relates to two mass harvests of precious souls. 1. To gather up the remainder of the saints. Although there will be no faithful Christians from our side of the tribulation to enter this dreadful time, there will be multitudes routed to a saving faith during that time leading up to and throughout most of those years, be it seven or more, all of whom will be killed, murdered because of their profession of faith during this same period, as Satan will have virtual, absolute, though not entirely unrestricted control of the earth. There will be no Holy Spirit to restrain him any longer. 2. To force mankind to face the reality and the wrath of the Lamb, his love long spurned, and 3. To prepare the remainder of rebel mankind for the humbling, submissive role he will play throughout the millennial reign, under the rule of the Lamb and his saints, after having given him the chance to fight and demonstrate his superiority to that of his Creator at Armageddon. The Seal Judgments, Heart of Every Man Seal Number 1, Advent of the First Global Conqueror Hitler and the imperialist Japanese under Hirohito fell during the close of World War II. Each entertained grandiose notions and visions of global subjugation and domination. A lesser-known truth, potentially just as dangerous and deadly, was and is that modern ambitions along this line did not originate with either of these. Truth be told, the battered and flustered East European Jews of Western Russia, specifically the Ashkenazim, who, led by the Lenin-Trotsky coalition, birthed, pragmatically, the deadly political virus form of Marxism known as Bolshevist Communism, were well on the way to implementation of the same kind of blood-drenched ideology before Lenin's untimely death. That torch was picked up and carried by Stalin and his Slavic successors until the 1991 Soviet collapse, albeit with no known Jews at the helm. See Appendices B and C in the book Judgment Day, Volume 2, Prelude to Armageddon, Part 2, also by this author. Lenin and Trotsky have long been dead. Hitler and Hirohito are roasting in hellfire with them, as we speak, along with Stalin. All these await the final judgment and their final resting place in the eternal flames of the lake of fire. Their dreams died with them, but the hope of a worldwide bloodbath lives on. That occasion is virtually upon us. The rise and coming of this rider on the white horse will usher in another of those biblical but otherwise unfathomable moments in history future, as of today, 11 Frosh 17 Mar 2008, that has made little sense heretofore, that is, until our day. Never before in the history of this planet has there ever been a time when one individual, leading one nation, 
could create and launch a globe-spanning hellish event that will so imperil the lives and occasion the deaths of so many within one short period of time. Managed Conflict, Global Chaos By this point in the eschatological narrative, the world will have had its fill of the sight of the Jew at the pinnacle of international power and influence a privilege handed to him following the Russo-Arab-EU drubbing, spelled out in Ezekiel 38 and 39. See the book Judgment Day, Volume 2, Prelude to Armageddon, Part 2. Israel catapulted to international superpower as Russia succumbs to Jewish domination, also by this author. Insufferable sight as it will likely be, a number of years will have elapsed, during which time the nations will have no doubt been able to affect some form or level of recovery. Having learned well the dangers of misplaced trust, banded by fragile peace treaties, from that previous multinational, coordinated assault, this will be a fact of life that will not be lost on Jewish leadership. They will not risk being surprised and caught off guard again. From this point forward, Mankind is destined to face and weather a firestorm of internationally debilitating events, one after the other. Life for those who remain on the earth, whether saint or sinner, will be no picnic. Insightful, spirit-guided students of Scripture and of Bible prophecy cannot but note that, interestingly, God takes full responsibility for each calamity, even when that calamity only comes as a consequence of his removal of his spirit from the earth, so that only the rebel will of man remains, managed and manipulated by the spirit of the evil one. Having free reign of the earth, virtually unabated, all hell will break loose. Nothing short of a reversal in the actions of God Almighty will be able to stand in the presence of the rider on the white horse. With God finally out of the picture, his heart's desire well in hand, Jesus the Christ will proceed to allow for an expose of the heart of every man. The seal judgments will usher in a period of intense mayhem, an all-out attempt at managed pandemonium, a time of controlled chaos and conflict, ignited by one man and or a group of people. This, you might say, is the commencement of and the woof and the fabric of World War III, in contradistinction to that envisioned by the evangelicals, fundamentalists, who erroneously equate World War III with the Battle of Armageddon. The White Horse and the Crowned Rider Chapter 6, Verse 1 And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts, saying, Come and see. Verse 2, And I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering, and to conquer. When the Lamb exercised the executive privilege which was rightly his, peeling back the first of the seven seals securing the scroll, John heard the booming voice of the first of the four living creatures, having the lion's face, thunder, Come! In response to the creature's stern command, there was movement, but it was not John coming or going anywhere to see anything. Rather, a white horse carrying a rider-sure warrior holding a bow, wearing a crown that he had been given upon his head came out to engage John's vision. 
That this rider on the horse wore a crown that was given seems to imply that his role as a leader will be the product of some form of election, a common consent, or appointment, as opposed to military or political intrigue. Some pastors like Tony Sheving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, N.D. and Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel of Leesburg, V.A. have correctly noted that the Greek term for crown here is stephanos, or wreath as in one given for winning some sort of contest, as opposed to a king's diadem like the one worn by Christ in Revelation 19-12. What they fail to see or point out, however, is that the term diadem is the one used to describe the crowns associated with the seven heads of the dragon in Revelation. 12.3 And the beast coming up out of the sea in Revelation. 13.1 Thus, it might well be argued that this character on the white horse, in his own unique leadership position, has authority and power, so to speak, albeit on a par less than that of a king, all of which means furthermore, then, that he cannot possibly be the same as the beast or the Antichrist. Whatever his ultimate objective, his immediate goal may not be so much a thirst for expansion of his authority as to do unto others before they do unto you. Thus, as John watched, the leader on the white horse, in obedience to the creature, rode forth overcoming, that he might overcome all this to signify his bent and his intent upon a domination that is global in scope. If, as this author suspects, his identity is Jewish, he will undoubtedly be fully apprised that the whole world is primed to kill him, and all Jews. Thus, his military excursion will trigger a time of intense, devastating global conflict. If ever there was a time when the hand of wayward mankind, turned upon himself in warfare, might jeopardize his very existence, this will or may well be it. Hundreds and hundreds of millions will die. No clues are given here or elsewhere in Scripture as to who this individual might be, nor as to what country he might represent. What is certain is that he is not the same person as the one who is destined to take center stage as the beast during the last half of the final seven years of the Apocalypse, 11, 7, 13, 3, 8, 12, 17, 7, 8, 11, i.e., he is not the beast or the end times leader, a.k.a. the Antichrist. It is widely accepted, however, that this rider is a futuristic figure who will doubtless be an Antichrist, for sure he is not of Italian descent. In all likelihood he will be Jewish, as alluded above, given that the most powerful people on the planet at this time will in all probability be the Jews, led by the godless, atheistic, non-God-fearing Ashkenazim, who gave the world the Bolsheviks communists. They had a similar ambition during the early 1900s. See the appendix in the book Judgment Day, Volume 2, Prelude to Armageddon, Part 2, Israel Catapulted to Global Superpower, also by this author. It is also quite likely, moreover, they will control the lion's share of the world's oil and other riches by virtue of the defeat of the Russians, the EU, and the Muslims at the hands of Almighty God. If all of this be true, 
then we can safely conclude that it will be God Almighty who gives this rider his crown and the wherewithal to make war with a world hell-bent on destroying him and all things Jewish. The scourge of Judaism? Curiously, perhaps, there is no effort either here or elsewhere in Scripture to link this rider on the white horse with the beast who emerges in chapter 13, who is the beast of chapter 17, and who will be of Italian descent. In truth, the fact that this rider wears a Stephanos, while the beast is specifically associated with a diadema, makes it abundantly clear that the two are not the same. Contrary to popular misperceptions among evangelical fundamentalist Christians. Here in this chapter is the first and last place he will ever be found or seen in the entire Revelation narrative. This may represent the best evidence that the two are not the same. This is not the Pope or anyone affiliated with any form of Roman Italian civil leadership. Moreover, Italy being a part of the EU, her armies will quite likely be among those pulverized in Israel, along with the Russians and the Muslims, and the rest of the EU. Being cash-strapped now as well as then, Italy will not have the wherewithal to reinvent itself militarily, at least not right away. Understandably, perhaps, the Vatican will, or might, have the finances, but with no significant army or military force of its own to command, and with Italy's EU neighbors reeling and still in disarray as well, following the drubbing upon the mountains of Israel, will not have the strength to mount so far reaching an assault alone, although without a doubt she will look with longing for a way to bring the world under her thumbs. No doubt about it, this could or will be her big moment, and without question realizing it, she will go for it. The Pope was forced out of Italy's civil government in 1929 or so. Therefore, quite likely, none will be too eager to see him and his corrupt church return to power, even though survival without him will be difficult. Truth then being stranger than fiction, one is forced to conclude that there is only one viable entity to be solvent enough, with perhaps justifiable motivation, to attempt so bold a move namely, the Jew, specifically the Ashkenazim, a most compelling probability, given the fact that he is not likely to soon forget that just a few years earlier he and the Semites will have been the objects of the most intense, murderous, all-out, anti-Semitic endeavor, ever, one calculated to rid the earth of all Jews, at once, permanently see Ezekiel 38 and 39. Nor is he likely to be so naive as to sit by waiting for the world to revive enough so as to mount a fresh attack. Who then, what military planner or politician is more likely to know better or to appreciate more fully than he the value of a good, thorough psychoanalysis of his most fervent nemesis? Are they not heralded as some of the most intelligent people on the planet? America having already been eliminated from the pages of time, Revelation 18, and the global equation, the only vestige and reminder of God will be the Jew, in a world destined for total godlessness. Because of his God-ordained victory over the Russian Federation, the Jew will have the power and the global positioning essential to effect 
at his discretion, the kind of worldwide catastrophic, cataclysmic change called for here, and, perhaps more horrifically, this writer knows it. Even without an America to lean upon, none will be able to stop him, not even India or the Chinese. What might appear to be a bodacious, near-suicidal assault on the one hand seems to suggest he will know this quite well on the other. He simply cannot afford the risk of sitting and waiting while the world recovers and regains strength. His own intelligence resources and connections will keep him ever on his toes, so that knowing the perpetual, hostile threat posed by the global community, he knows, absent the melting pot, he has no friends, only enemies, past and future peace accords notwithstanding. The crowned rider's mission. His mission appears to be conquest, strictly for sake of conquest, at least initially. This is a politically motivated move, not a religious one, which further rules out any possibility of an attempt by the Vatican at global dominance. In addition, contrary to the misgivings of some, the fact that this rider goes out with a bow without arrows does not mean that his objective is one of peace. John specifically states that his mission is conquering and to conquer. The fact that he has no arrows, however, might more likely suggest that he is the cause behind the bloody international infighting to come, although he himself has no intention of getting directly involved. For certain, his ultimate objective is anything but peace. In addition, John makes it perfectly clear that the world's initial embrace of the beast, Ekie, the Antichrist, has nothing to do with either war or deceitful charm as rather they gravitate wholeheartedly to him because of the relief he brings by consequence of his killing of God's two witnesses. When he does go to war, it is after God has destroyed his kingdom and thereby the world's confidence in him using the bold judgments. Unlike as is the case here, however, where the rider on the white horse leads an offensive of aggression, the beast leads a federation of nations duped into regrouping behind him in a defensive posture in response to the offensive aggression brought on by the clearly disillusioned, disenchanted kings of the East, who are shown on the march at the river Euphrates several thousands of miles from their homes in the east. Although the Pope is a political head of state, the impact and scope of his effort will have global ramifications. Unlike the beast who will come out of death wholly given over to satanic domination and thereby be promoted straight to a global throne as the problem-solver who rescued the world from the scourge of God's two powerful witnesses, this rider on the white horse goes straight for the world's jugular, taking full advantage of the expose of its soft underbelly, deliberately and intentionally triggering tremendous socio-economic pressures, political unrest, and hardship, in the process, leading to war, unbearable suffering, and casualties in the extreme, literally all over the planet, this approach would be very much in keeping with early false Jew hope spelled out in Lenin, Nostrotsky, Bolshevik, na communist dogma stipulating unrest and unbridled bloodletting as prime vehicles by means of which to bring every nation to its knees, simultaneously forcing them into one mold, under one rule, 
spotting and crushing any and all opposition, in the bud, with murderous brutality was of the essence. This was in contrast to the Stalinist-era preferences, which sought a nation-by-nation approach. This is the style of communism we encountered in North Korea, Cambodia, and during the Vietnam War. Moreover, while the Semitic Jews will without a doubt choose to settle primarily, if not exclusively, in Palestine, the Ashkenazim will unquestionably have seized the moment to occupy and position themselves at the helm of the Russian industrial and military machine, which means then that, in conjunction with the hidden, multicultural agendas of the secret societies, as these in some measure parallel those of the Bolshevist communists, the end justifies the means. They will be more than able and prone, if not compelled, to mount such an initiative. Furthermore, in light of their passion for dealing and playing all the cards, commanding both sides of any court, the societies are not likely to care who is at the helm, so long as they and their objectives are in control. And yet, in truth, it is not entirely necessary that they be involved here, so that it is in the end not altogether inconceivable that the Jews might act, stand alone. Consider that the allure and the appeal for this kind of preemptive first strike, the ultimate shock and awe, could not be greater for them as they, motivated by the need to self-preservate, seek to avert the possibility of a world reunited against them. The Ezekiel Initiative Refonk, shall we call it, the theme of Judgment Day, Part 2, Israel.Global Superpower, will slow them and settle them down temporarily, but it will never deter their ultimate ambition to liquidate the Jew once and for all. On top of a never-ending, seething, burning desire for revenge, there will come another all-out attempt at the genocide of the Jew, the Holocaust revisited, consider 12 and 13, 17, 13, 7, Daniel 7, 25, 11, 27. Given the heat and passion of an unquenchable, semite-oriented, boiling bloodlust, the world will never acquiesce willingly to the authority and rule of the Jew. Of this the Jew will unquestionably be fully apprised. And so it will be that, to force a fit for himself perhaps, as a kind of Christ in the huge voids and vacuums left by the fall of Babylon the Great and by the collapse of Russia, this writer being nominally Jewish, will resurrect and implement those old lenin osh trotsky era communist ideologies. Without doubt, his objective is offensive, simply for the sake of self-preservation, as opposed to defensive, where he leads a nation under assault in self-defense. That is, the country over which this de facto leader, shall we say, presides whatever the threats, otherwise is not currently under attack from anyone. Where he will be concerned, knowing the political and social climate, keeping tabs and getting a handle on every potential threat will be critical. No doubt the Jews will sense that they are at a tipping point, one that will demand that they act now, decisively and preemptively. No effort is expended bringing the world together under any kind of a banner of peace and unity. No interest is ever expressed or implied such that he is concerned about harmony 
on any level with respect to the nations. Every war carries with it a series of inevitable consequences. Each will leave its mark and take a toll on society in a number of different ways. This war, begun by the rider upon his white horse, will be no different. Being truly global in nature, its consequences are related symbolically by the following four horses and their riders. The suggestion here is that they are all directly the product and outgrowth of his activity, which suggests, moreover, that they might never have happened on so grand a scale had he not gone on the warpath. Even more intriguing, although he is the instigator, the nations obviously are not united in any kind of an initiative directed against him in self-defense, as much as they appear to be hopelessly divided and preoccupied in fighting and killing each other, at whatever the cost. Thus, moreover, this appears to be similar to if not exactly the type of psychological ploy touted by Ashkenazim Jews, Lenin and Trotsky to stimulate and promote global unrest undergirded by merciless killing and bloodshed, to silence any opposition, so as to bring about a chaotic collapse of the world around them in their day. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a wrap for this edition of the Bible Prophecy Masterclass. Please make plans to join us again next time as we continue to unravel this sixth chapter of the Book of the Revelation and the Mystery of the Seven Seals. Until we meet again, may God richly bless you.